All right. This, I, I'm not used to being inside. I'm usually over there with the kids. I'm Chris Thielen. I'm the children's pastor. So it's wonderful to be with you uh, today. And uh, we get to preach. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about the resurrection today. And so I, I, uh, I'm going to go fast because I'm a kid's pastor and I like to talk fast in order to keep kids' attention. So uh, there's a, I'm going to go way faster than you're probably used to. And uh, you just have to listen really fast. And if, I, if you miss something, come back and I'll get you, you know, fill in the gaps of what you think you might have missed. I was a history major in college at Cal State Hayward, and I took a class on the Reformation, which is like 1500s when the Protestants broke from the Catholics. And I figured that this guy who was the, past, the, the professor was gonna be a, a believer, or at least sympathetic to Christianity. And uh, the first day of class, of course I was late, <laughs> and so I had to sit in front, because nobody sits in front in a college class, first day of class, didn't know anybody. And, but he was about 15 minutes left in class, and he asked the question, he said, you know, why was Christianity the only institution to survive the fall of the Roman Empire going into the Dark Ages? Every other social, political, economic, religious, cultural, educational, military institution died out. Why was it that Christianity is the only one that survived? And I just, I was brand new in my faith, so I was really eager and I didn't care. And I was just like, the resurrection. <laughs> and it was like a bomb drop. The guy got really mad, really agitated, and he started yelling, he's like, that's ridiculous. Resurrection never happened. Jesus never died. He just passed out and they stole the body. Class dismissed, you know, and, Okay, so we walked out and guys were going like that and some guys gave me a high five for getting out 15 minutes early. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, didn't really, I didn't realize back then how much I believed it uh, back in 1991. Uh, so much more today even than I believed it then. And so last, night, last week, of course, was Easter. We talked about the resurrection a lot and Pastor Mike asked me to follow up with um, a message today on why the resurrection matters. I think it's one of those Christian beliefs that we kind of take for granted a lot of times. We don't think about it a whole lot. And as you know, the, the world is increasingly hostile to Christian beliefs, Christian morals. They're coming for us. And I think that the resurrection is one of those things that is vitally important to our faith and we need to know how to defend it. We need to know how to explain it because the attacks are coming from a whole lot of different directions and we need to realize how the resurrection is central to our faith. Uh, do a little shameless plug here. I do a class on Wednesday nights called Gospel University. A couple of you guys have been in it. It's really fun, but we, I go through uh, 13 weeks about how to defend your faith in all these different areas. We'll start again in the fall. Love to have you join us. It's a lot of fun. But I have a great quote here just to start us off from Sir Lionel Lecou. And I really just like the guy's name. I wanted to put it on the screen. That's why I wanted to get, no, anyway. But this guy is fantastic. He is in the Guinness Book of World Records. For, he was in there for 18 years straight as the most successful trial attorney who's ever lived. So from, from January of 1985 on, he, uh, he had 245 consecutive murder acquittals. So incredibly uh, fantastic trial attorney, and somebody challenged him to take his tremendous legal knowledge and apply it to Jesus' resurrection, and this is the quote that he said. He said, I say unequivocally that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. I think that guy's a little more authoritative than the blogger that you see uh, somebody retweet, retweet or repost. Josh McDowell spent set over 700 hours trying to destroy Christianity. He was targeting the resurrection because he knew if I could destroy the resurrection, I can destroy Christianity. And he said, the resurrection is either the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon people, or it's the most important fact in history. I was recently at a, on a jury, and for a jury trial, uh, on a hit and run with the death of, of somebody after the hit and run. 
And uh, that's Luther Nicholson's niece was there, uh, was a prosecutor. She did a great job. And, uh, but the county had to prove that uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, of course, that, you know, that this, she knew that she had hit a person. And what she did at the, her closing arguments is she had, this is what we know. And she put all these things, these little circles on the, on the screen. As, this is what we know. This is what we know. And pretty soon the whole screen was filled up with all the things that we knew to be true. You see, because it was possible, even plausible, that she didn't know that she had hit a man in the street and killed him. But it wasn't probable. And it was less than two hours deliberating and we were out of there because it was beyond a reasonable doubt that she had killed this guy. And it's similar with, with the resurrection. So what I wanna do, and again, there's way more than what I can explain here, but I wanted to just kind of blast you initially here with this is what we know. Boom, 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 boom. This is, these are just some of the things that we know to be true about the resurrection. Uh, a big one here is that we know that Jesus was dead. We know that the Romans were expert ex- executioners, that they put a spear in Jesus' side and blood and water came out, which is proof that he was already dead. We know that they didn't break the legs, which is what they would have done to hasten his death. And so they knew he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. We know that there was a massive loss of blood and he was too weak to carry the cross beam. There's no way he could have survived it. We know that the resurrection story was circulated and verifiable by witnesses. We know that Paul referenced the resurrection from material within three to eight years after the event. We know that much of the New Testament was written within the lifetime of these witnesses, of people that would have been alive, still alive to verify. Paul even said, he says, if you don't believe, just go ask them. We know that there was no alternative explanation that was ever taken seriously. We know that the tomb was impenetrable. A one and a half to two ton stone rolled down a slope wedged over the mouth of the cave that Jesus was in. 10 to 30 guards guarding the tomb. A common, it was a common burial by the Jews, which means they took the body immediately, wrapped it in about 100 pounds of spices and linens that the disciples were all scared away and they certainly would not have taken on those soldiers and that there was a cord and a seal placed over the tomb, punishable by death for removing it and they wouldn't have put it there until the guards were already in place. We know the body was never found, that it was never contested that the body was missing and if it had been, they would have just produced the dead body. We know that soldiers would have been killed for falling asleep or being paid off and they weren't. And so it must have been miraculous in some way. We know that the grave clothes were folded in the tomb. And so what are we to assume? That the disciples stole a naked body? We know also that the resurrection changed everything. And to me, this is the most convincing one. The story that they told was that the women found Jesus first. We know that women's testimony in court would have been invalid. And so why would you, if you were creating the story, why would you say that? We know that Mary clung to Jesus and you can't cling to a hallucination or a vision. We know that he appeared to the disciples in the room. Thomas put his finger in the wounds. We know that uh, he appeared to over 500 people at once and they would have only counted men. It could have been 1,500, 2,000 with kids and, and wives. And the eyewitnesses attested. We know that Jesus ate fish and bread and ghosts don't eat. Uh, we know that the disciples go from cowards to world-changing martyrs. And uh, I don't know about you, but it would take an awful lot for me to believe that my brother was God. James, his brother, had his life changed, didn't believe before, and now all of a sudden he believes his brother's God or Paul who persecuted the church. And since the tomb was empty, the the Christians never went back and venerated the tomb. Why didn't they do that? And the early church were a bunch of very devout Jews who changed everything about the way that they worshiped. They moved the Sabbath day. They stopped sacrificing animals. They stopped emphasizing law-keeping. They were monotheists who became Trinity-believing Christians, and they 
in their mind, Messiah was, um, was God, not just a human. And there's so many other things. Boom, 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 boom. This is what we know to be true about the resurrection. And so I wanted to share with you this morning just why that matters. Why is it then? That the, because we, we do overlook it so often. Our first point is that Jesus' resurrection gives meaning to our faith. We're gonna be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you wanna turn your Bible on or <laughs> open, up, open it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you know, if you've taken our Discovery 101 uh, kind of membership class, one of the things that we talk about is open and closed-handed beliefs. Uh, open-handed beliefs would be beliefs that we would have that would be kind of peripheral things, secondary issues, things that we don't divide over, but we can, we can argue and debate a little bit. But closed-handed beliefs are things that we hold on to no matter what. These are foundational issues to our faith, that God created the universe, that the Bible is God's word, that we have salvation by grace, that the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ are absolutely foundational to our belief system and our faith crumbles without them. But you guys know, and if you're on social media at all or reading blogs or things like that, that there's a lot of people out there with bumper sticker theology, right? They have meme worldviews and stuff like, you know, open, open your mind, not your Bible. Or they're so proud to say, well, I don't believe in myths, I just follow the science. Stuff like that. And it's funny how few of those people have actually looked at the data and the facts. It seems like there's a lot of atheists out there who are more religious about their beliefs than we are. And we have the facts on our side. And we have facts that underlie the beliefs that we say that we believe. And that's why I think that you're filling there is that our faith is not a leap into the dark, it's a step into the light. We, our faith is not based uh, on flimsy evidence, <laughs> folks. We have rock solid evidence that we can stand on. And so we're gonna attack this first kind of line of, of attack that, that where they, the way that they come to us. You see, when the Bible was written, just about everybody had a supernatural worldview. Most people believe back then in life after death, but a really prevalent view today is something that's a fancy word, uh, but you'll, you'll understand. It's naturalistic materialism, <laughs> right? Who cares? It's just something that you know people that are too smart for their own good like to call it, but it's naturalistic materialism. But really what it means is they'll say that the universe is only matter, it's molecules, it's things that you can touch and, and, and feel and see and, and weigh and things like that. So naturalistic material, the universe is only matter and it's controlled just by natural processes. So they would say there's no supernatural. Everything is just molecules in motion. We're just moist robots. And everything has to have a scientific answer. And if there's not, then we can't believe it. That's kind of the, a very prevalent view that's out there today. And so since there's no naturalistic explanation for rising from the dead, then they'll say it certainly couldn't have happened. Now I understand, if you're scientifically inclined, you may think that naturalistic materialism makes the most sense. But I wanna challenge you with something if you do. Because if you buy that, you have to accept everything that that implies. And so if you go to Costco and you get a big bag of box of chips, right? And you've got Ruffles, Lay's, Cheetos, uh, Fritos, Funyuns, all that in there. But you really like the chili cheese Fritos. Okay, so can you go into Costco and open up a bunch of boxes and there's 28 in this box and just start pulling out all the chili cheese Fritos out of every box so that you can go home with a box of 28 chili cheese Fritos? Can you do that? Come on now. No, you can't do that. If you buy the box at Costco, what do you have to buy? The whole box, right? You have to take everything that's in here. So you may not like the sour cream and onion lays. I'm sorry, you, ha you can throw them away when you get home, but you can't just dig through at Costco and, and pick out what you want. And so here's the idea. If you're gonna accept a worldview, you have to take everything that that worldview implies. You have to take the whole box. 
And if you accept naturalistic materialism, you've got to accept all the other implications that go along with it. You have to accept the idea that everything, everything that exists is material, right? That it's just molecules in motion, that there is no supernatural, spiritual, or immaterial. And so if you come across one of these people, I'd like you to ask them, well, do you love your kids or your wife? How much does your love weigh? Do you, are sunsets beautiful to you? What's the density of beauty? And when something bad happens, you can say, well, do you want justice? What's the height and length and width of justice? Because if it's physical, you should be able to measure it. You see, and you could ask them, well, how did you come to that conclusion? You know, did you use logic? Well, what's the mass of logic? <laughs> Consciousness is immaterial. Are you conscious or are you just unconscious? You see, the thing is, you gotta buy the whole box. And so if you're gonna believe in naturalistic materialism, that there's, there has to be a scientific natural uh, explanation for everything that happens, then you have to deny the existence of love and consciousness and logic and beauty and justice and everything else that's immaterial. So there really is only two options. Either matter is, is eternal or everything was created by someone who is immaterial. Here's the catch. Science proved within the last 100 years that the universe has not always existed. The universe is not eternal. Science has taught us that all time, matter, space, and energy came into existence at one point, like, you know, something like maybe a creation event. You see, whatever created time, matter, space, and energy must be timeless, immaterial, spaceless, and powerful. Hmm. Sound like anybody you know? See, it sounds rather supernatural and miraculous, don't you think? So I'd say that denying the miraculous is actually unscientific. That's just my opinion. But you can't say that everything has a naturalistic explanation because science has disproven that because the universe is not eternal. So the naturalistic materialist worldview is empty on its face. Nobody lives like that. So we all accept that immaterial things are real, love, beauty, justice, things like that. And the world only makes sense if there are spiritual and supernatural things. And so some people are gonna come along and they're gonna say, well, follow the science. But then they'll turn around and reject all the medical, historical, geographical, archeological evidence for the resurrection. And they'll concoct theories out of whole cloth to support their ideas with no data or evidence. Such as, <laughs> so let's go ahead and look at some of these alternate theories, naturalistic theories that people will give toward it. They'll say that Jesus never died. The, they call it the swoon theory. But we know with the massive loss of blood that Jesus had, with the, with the nails coming through his, his hands, which have pierced major nerves, they didn't break his legs, they were professional executioners. We know that Jesus was dead. That the, the executioner would have lost his life had Jesus just swooned and not actually died. With the Jewish burial, how is somebody who had gone through everything Jesus did, wrapped in 100 pounds of cloth, supposed to roll a two-ton stone up and out of the way with, with arms that had been you know, had the nerve severed. There's no way that Jesus did not die. Another theory is that the apostles stole the body while the soldiers slept. This is the one that was immediately made up by Jewish and Roman leaders. But we know that uh, the Roman guard that was there in front of the, tr the tomb was the highest standard of military discipline and courage. 10 to 30 soldiers able to protect six feet of space, sleeping in shifts, 12 awake at each time. And if they fell asleep during their shift, when they were supposed to be awake, they would be killed. If you were gonna be killed for falling asleep, do you think you could stay awake for a while? Yeah. And do you think that you know this two-ton stone 
could have been rolled away by a bunch of tiptoeing apostles without the soldiers waking up? Come on. Spiritual resurrection. Some people say it was just a, it was a, it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a bodily resurrection. Well, like we said, you know, spirits don't eat fish. Spirits don't get touched. Uh, spirits, you know, have, don't have flesh and bones. Uh, spirits don't get hugged. You like Jesus did. Some people say it was the wrong tomb, that the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, then if it was the wrong tomb, then why did the high priest offer a bribe? Why didn't they just take everybody to the right tomb? Why didn't they produce the body? And if they were making up the story, they wouldn't say that women saw them first and, or they would have just you know, gone to those eyewitnesses and had them taken out. Some people say it was a group hallucination, like my professor years ago. But listen, would you be put to death for something that you knew was a lie? Or could you, could you say that you know, 500 plus people had the same dream on the same night? A hallucination only lasts a couple seconds. It doesn't last for 40 days. And you can't have this, you can't, you know, concoct a hallucination where 500 people are having it together. It's an individual event. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is writing this letter to the Corinthians, and he's at the end of it here in chapter 15, he's talking about the resurrection. This is written in about the mid-50s AD, about 20 years after Jesus' um, resurrection, and he anticipates some of these objections to the resurrection in verse three through seven. That's what he says. He says, for what I've received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. See, Paul right here is, is, is attacking all of these, you know, refutations of the, of the resurrection. He says Christ died to refute the idea that he just passed out. He said Christ was buried to refute the idea that the disciples stole the body or they went to the wrong tomb. He says he appeared to Cephas in 12 and the 500 to refute the idea of a mass hallucination. And he says he appeared to me also to refute the idea that there were not eyewitnesses still alive. And so guys, Jesus' resurrection is the most studied event in history. The details and facts are rock solid. It'd be silly to fabricate elaborate stories to try to come up with some naturalistic, materialist explanation for it. So Chuck Colson, he was involved in Richard Nixon's uh, cabinet, uh, became a Christian later, but he, this is what he said uh, about concerning Watergate and the resurrection. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled the 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So can the supernatural happen? Of course. It's the only logical explanation for reality because, and it's easy for us to believe that because if God is God and he could speak the universe into existence by the word of his mouth, don't you think it'd be pretty easy to raise a guy from the dead? Yeah. So Paul addresses those who say that the dead cannot rise. Some people will say that in in, uh, verse 12 through 19. So he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised, uh, has not been raised, or has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, and if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that, mean, that means dying, in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul makes a few conclusions here. He says, listen, if, okay, if the dead do not rise, as ancient and modern people will believe, that these things are true, then Christ did not rise. Then telling others about Christ is empty and meaningless. Then our faith in Christ is meaningless. Then we're liars for telling others that he was raised. Then we're still in our sins. And those who are dead, who believe, they're lost. And he says, and we deserve pity for being duped and being persecuted like we are for believing a lie. You see, this is why the resurrection is a closed-handed belief, that we hold on to it and we don't budge. Because if Christ is not raised, then Christianity itself is, is worthless and invalid. And if Christ is not raised, then death and sin are not conquered. And if Christ is not raised, his death does not provide forgiveness of sins, and we are still separated from God. That's why it's important. But the dead do rise, and Christ is risen, which means we are guaranteed a future resurrection. You guys know that, right? We're all gonna be resurrected again? That we are freed from the curse of human sin passed down by Adam? So part of this sin that we take on as part of being human is gonna be gone. That Jesus will destroy all opposition to his sovereignty and he'll rule with justice, amen? And that death itself will be destroyed and we have nothing to fear for all eternity. That's awesome. Sounds rather important, doesn't it? <laughs> Sound like one of those centerpieces of our faith? Because Christ was raised, we have hope and that this life is not all there is. That death and sin have been conquered and we have a way to God. And this is why the resurrection matters, because it proves the supernatural nature of our faith. And it combats this naturalistic materialism that says we, have, we only need science for all of our answers. Now let me ask you, in the last year, if it's taught us anything, it's that science doesn't say anything. Scientists do, but science itself does not say anything. And science is constantly changing. And we can trust it, but it's not God's word. So my point is that scientific discovery, which naturalistic materialism relies on, is not the same as revelation from God or verified historical events. And so you cannot disbelieve the resurrection because it doesn't fit your scientific, naturalistic, materialist worldview. So Paul's argument here is that the resurrection gives meaning to our faith because there is a God and he performs supernatural miracles, and that resurrection is possible, and that God can and does act supernaturally in our lives today. All right? You got that, right? All right, you with me? Okay, uh, I told you I was gonna go fast. So, <laughs> number two, Jesus' resurrection gives meaning to our bodies. Whew. Can we just admit that our culture is very confused about the human body? <laughs> about basic anthropology and human sexuality and what it means to be human? So here's a few things that the Bible says about our bodies, okay? First, it says imago Dei. That means we're made in the image of God. Now, an image, as we know, is kind of like a picture. 
It's a representation of what something is like. And the Bible actually uses the word like we are an immature of God. We represent what he's like. We're an expression of him on this earth. And that gives every person incredible value, worth, and dignity, regardless of their social economic class, physical features, genetics, size, health, race, whatever. It's, the Christian view is the only view that can support the idea that every person is inherently valuable just in the fact that they're a person. That every body is created for an eternal purpose. Because you see, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And so the second bad idea in our culture is this, it's very different from naturalistic materialism, which denies the spiritual altogether. This one is an, a resurfacing of some kind of ancient idea called Gnosticism. Okay, don't get tripped up. It's, it's the G, and it's a silent G on the, on the top, but it's Gnosis with a G is the Greek uh, idea of knowledge, okay? That here's the idea, that Gnosticism is this idea that you can attain a special knowledge. It's kind of new age today. It's Oprahism, okay? Uh, it's this separate, and what they did is it, it kind of focused on the separation of, of the physical, which is kind of largely seen as bad, from the spiritual, which is largely seen as good. It's a way over, oversimplification, but forgive me. So the, the physical is kind of bad, the spiritual is good, and so they, want, they seek to separate the two. It's very common in the, in the ancient world, but this is why for them, Jesus, as God, coming to take on a human body, which would be bad, is such a scandal. And they combat that all through the New Testament. But by separating the physical from spiritual, our culture does this all the time. So it reduces us to either a body or either a soul. It's this idea of reductionism, uh, another fancy word, but it's the idea, you know what reducing means, right? It's reducing somebody from a higher, more complex level to a lower, less complex level. And so you, what our culture is constantly doing is reducing this full, uh, complex humanity that God has given us by separating the, the physical from the spiritual. And uh, this is where we get all of our identity politics. Defining people by some reduced part of who they are instead of their whole person. So this is why our culture is constantly identifying or limiting people to their race, their politics, their gender, their religion, their socioeconomic status, their sexual orientation, whatever. They define you by some little subgroup that you belong in rather than this complex, intricate human being that you are, that we all are. So God has created us as these whole beings not to be reduced, but to just one little characteristic and defined by that group. The image of God is holistic, which means, the second thing, that you are an embodied soul. You see, the Bible's really clear that we are not a soul separate from a body. We are a soul with a body, and they are intertwined. They go together. Now, I realize this doesn't sound all that important. Like, why are we talking about this? Let me tell you how, our, how this plays out in our culture and the thinking of what goes on in our culture. Think about sexually. People will think that, well, I can do things in my body and it doesn't affect my soul. The hookup culture. Think about fitness. Well, I can have a fit body and pursue youth, but not ever really deal with my soul issues. Or abortion. It can kill the baby's body inside because it doesn't have a soul or euthanasia, 
we, the, this elderly body is, it costs too much to society and because their soul doesn't really matter. You could just kill their body. Gender. What you feel you are in your mind overrules what your body says you are. Substance abuse. I can get high and get the effects in my body and it not really affect my soul. Marriage. I can love my spouse but cheat on them with my body. Abuse. I can hurt somebody else, hurt their body, but I still love them in my soul. You see? What we do in our bodies affects our soul. And that means that our bodies matter. You see why this is more important than we think it is, right? There's an author, Camille Paglia, Paglia, uh, professor, author, critic, she said this, this quote, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Nope. <laughs> I'm sorry, you do not. Because if you create something, you have claim over it. And if God has created us in his image, then he has claim over it, your body, and he will reclaim it. So you see, we have this choice we can either believe the cultural experts and influencers, or we can believe Jesus. Now, I don't know Camille Paglia. Uh, I'm sure she's a really smart lady, but I think I'm gonna go with the guy who rose from the dead over some smarty pants professor. I'm pretty sure he has more credibility and a larger following than she does. Uh, and this is why Jesus is not on the wrong side of history, folks. He's the focal point of history. And only when we subject our bodies to his will are we living the way that we were created for. And that's why earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, in chapter six, verse 19, Jesus says, or I'm sorry, Paul says, do you not know that our bodies are temples? What, is, what happens in a temple? That's where they believe God's spirit dwelled. Your body is where God's spirit dwells. Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so Paul says that if you don't believe that the body and the soul matter to God, then honestly, then life is meaningless. So in verse 32 of chapter 15, he says, well, if you believe that, then just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why not just live it up? If you're not an imager of God, just live it up. Who cares? You know, if we're just here by cosmic accident, if evolution is true, and it's all random chance and chaos and we are just moist robots. Man, just live it up. Well, isn't that the lifestyle of many in Corinth and of our culture today? Well, the, the next one is that we have an immaterial mind. All right, fun little exercise that I like to do in my class. I love this. Uh, I want everybody right now just to shop and I want you to think of a pink elephant with big purple tusks. Can you think of it? You got it? You can close your eyes if you need to. Pink elephant, purple tusk, you got it? Okay, once you've thought of it, um, I want you to, I wanna ask you this. If I came down and I cut your head open and I rummaged through your brain, would I find a little pink elephant with purple tusks in there? No, I hope not. <laughs> uh, you wanna try, anybody? No, uh, no, but no. So if not, then where does it exist? Where is this pink elephant with purple tusks? You saw it, didn't you? You see, this is the deal. Your mind is not your brain. Your brain is a three pound gushy gray matter mess and you got neurons firing in there and you only use 10% of it. That's your brain. But your mind is your consciousness, your free will, your reason, your dreams, your thoughts, everything that's immaterial. You are not just a moist robot. 
And your, 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 the love and the beauty and the things that you feel are not just neurons firing in your physical brain. You see, your physical body matters because it is tied to your immaterial brain. And you, so you cannot be one thing in your mind and another thing in your body. So Paul, in, in uh, here, this, all these verses, he's explaining how Jesus' resurrection gives meaning to our bodies. In verse 42, he says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see, Paul's saying that resurrection matters because it ties your spirit to your body. That Jesus has a resurrection body. And for eternity, he'll have a body with nail scars. You see, this means that we too will get resurrection bodies. And this means that because our bodies matter enough to be resurrected, that our bodies today matter. Because one day we'll be getting a new body. And let me just tell you, when we get a new body, mine better have hair. <laughs> okay, I'm telling you because, dude, if it doesn't, I am writing a strongly worded letter. Am I right, Mark? Yeah. Gee whiz. You can make me six feet too. That'd be better, but I just want some hair. Okay, all right. Number three, uh, Jesus' resurrection gives us a way to eternity. So as bad as naturalistic materialism and Gnosticism are, I think there's another bigger challenge that we have. It's indifference. You see, the idea that, that Christianity is outdated, it's irrelevant, it's mythical, and many of you run across people who refuse to think about eternity because they're just so preoccupied with life on earth. I've got a childhood friend, I'm sure he's much like uh, many of your friends that you have. He knows the gospel, uh, he knows the truth about Christ, we told him, but now he says, after years of talking with him, that all religions lead to God. Now he says, and you know, all paths leave up, lead up the mountain to God. And he's admitted, you know, we've asked him, well, what's your proof for that? You know, he said, well, I don't have any proof or reason and we say, have you actually studied all the religions? No, 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 no. It just feels right, you know? Very scientific. And so, but when you, when you talk to him a little bit more, it's like he's a single guy and he's admitted really what it is is he wants to sleep around, he wants to smoke pot and he doesn't want to be accountable to anybody. And so my brother and I have told him, we're like, okay, well, if that's it, then just admit it. Like admit that that's the reason. Be honest with yourself enough to say, well, really the reason is I just don't want to follow God. But don't come at us with this garbage about like you've thought about it and you're following evidence that all roads lead to God, to God. No. He's just plagued with indifference. He's preoccupied with everything that's happening on this earth and he's failed to think about the gravity of eternity. But Jesus' resurrection, folks, it doesn't leave us a lot of room for indifference. It presses us to make a choice. And so C.S. Lewis years ago had come up with this. And many, of you, I'm many of you, I'm sure, have seen this, uh, the Lord, liar, lunatic idea. And here's a great, if you haven't seen this quote, it's a great quote, I'll read it to you. It says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher, great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. <laughs> so these people will say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. That, that doesn't, you, because you've not confronted then who's Jesus. So when somebody says that to you, you say, well, then tell me who Jesus is. That's, uh, the issue is always Jesus, whether he died, was buried, and resurrected. Paul's not having it either. Uh, he says, you have to make a, a decision about Jesus. Your eternity is staked on it. So in verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, indifference toward Jesus is rejection of him because you remain as you are. You have flesh and blood. You have a perishable, perishable body. And so if you remain as you are, just indifferent to whatever's going on, then what will happen is you will die with your perishable body. You will not have the promise of resurrection where you get an imperishable and immortal body. So verse 53 says, for the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, or your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful passage. You see, Paul's saying, you say, listen, without sin, why would you be afraid to die? So sin has been taken away. The sting of sin, is, uh, of death is sin. We're only afraid of death because of sin. But when sin is taken away, there's no fear of death because we'll face our creator without um, fear that he will reject us because we're in Christ. And so the power of sin is the law. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He removed sin, so death has no victory. It has no power. Thanks be to God, right? His resurrection gives us a way to eternity. It's the only way. And so to my friend and, and yours who would say that all roads lead to God, I have a great quote here from Kevin DeYoung. He says, yes, all paths lead to God, but only one path will present you before God without fault and with great joy. So pick a path, any path, and it will take you to God. Trust me, you will stand before him one day. You will meet your maker. You will see the face of Christ. There are many ways up the mountain, but only one will result in life instead of destruction. So folks, Jesus' resurrection matters because it gives us the only way to eternity with our Father in heaven. And so Chuck Colson, another quote from him, he said, well, because Christ is risen, Despair is a sin. You see, because if you become indifferent to spiritual things, you just kind of too concerned with life on this earth. If you feel under attack, uh, and it's a caused you to attack somebody back, <laughs> if you've gotten increasingly frustrated and restless and anxious about the state of the world, let me remind you that because Christ is risen, we need not despair. In verse 24, 26, kind of that middle of that passage, of chapter 15, Paul gives this tremendous promise right in the middle. He says, Christ will destroy all dominion, power, and authority that opposes him. Verse 24 through 26. It says, he will put 
all his enemies under his feet, that he will reign. He will destroy the last enemy, which is death. He will hand the kingdom to God the Father so that God may be all in all. Folks, sooner or later, we're all gonna die. And rather than despair that life is not all that you hoped it was, you should rejoice that our resurrected life is gonna be more than we could ever dream. So Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that'll be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Folks, we have a lot of hope. We need not despair about what's going on in our world today. And you need not feel attacked because we have the truth and the evidence on our side. You see, the first time Jesus came, it was to be killed and resurrected. But the next time, <laughs> he's gonna reign supreme to right wrongs, bring justice and peace and rescue his people. So cheer up, church. <laughs> Am I right? Christ is risen. Let's, let's try that again. It's, 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 he is risen indeed, if you remember. Okay, let's try that again. Christ is risen. Okay, that's better. You see, your eternity is protected and sealed by the Holy Spirit through the power of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection until the, all power and dominion is given to the Father. And that's why the resurrection matters, not just on Easter. All right, let's pray.